Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we get questions and look at them through the lens of scripture. Our desire is to know what God's word has to say and how we're supposed to live, rightly dividing the word of God. We believe that the word of God is our authority. Jesus even said, more blessed than Mary, and Mary was blessed among women, are those who hear his words and do them. Jesus also said that his words would never fade away on the Sermon on the Mount. So this is our foundation. This is why we believe what we believe and the way that we can make sure that we are believing the right and proper things. Now, we take questions throughout the hour. So if you have a question, write the word question, then re write your, yeah, your question out, but reread it. Make sure that it makes sense before you submit it so that we can know that we've got you know, that you, we can know that you have the question that you want to answer and I can get it clearly. All right. So our first question comes from our Q&A that we had on Saturday. And there was a question asked about a video that shows um, a hole in the Euphrates River bed and demons screaming and, and different things happening. Uh, that are supposed to be the four demons that are eventually released in the book of Revelation that are under the Euphrates River. I had said that I'd never heard of it, but that I would play it and we'll talk about it uh, in, in this uh, Q&A. And so I tried to get a video that you could hear and I just wasn't able to do it. It's something that I've got to work on uh, so that I, I, I know there's a way to do it. I just wasn't able to make it happen. I also don't know what all the copyright rules are for YouTube, and I don't want to get a copyright strike. So I'm going to play a little bit of this for you, and I'm going to describe it. I don't think you're going to be able to hear it. Maybe you can. Uh, you can let me know whether you can hear it or not uh, on the comment section. It's good to see you guys here, by the way. Good to have you joining us. Um, and so let's go ahead and play a little bit of this video. I think I've got the volume up. I don't think my microphones will pick this up for you guys, um, but let's just go ahead and give it a shot. I'm going to go ahead and bring it in here and I'm going to play it. I'm not going to play a whole lot of it because uh, I don't want to get a copyright strike. I don't think you can play 100% of the video. This is a couple minutes long. So if you could hear right now, there's growling and screeching. Um, chains rattling. It sounds very demonic. Um, my wife was sitting in here with me before I got on the air and I, I played this trying to figure out if I could play it for you guys. And she said, what is that, a horror movie? And I said, yes, it's a horror movie. It's a little horror movie. And so I'm going to go ahead and stop it here. And um, you guys get the idea. That's all the video is. And because of the video, we don't even know if it is the, um, if it is, hey, I got you guys up on the screen. Hey, good to see you guys. Nice. Uh, we don't even know if it is uh, the Euphrates River or not. All right. But here's the thing. the Euph There's a drought throughout the whole part of the world where the Euphrates River runs down into uh, the Gulf. The Tigris River runs along it as well. It used to be a great river. Remember, Babylon was built around it, and Babylon was taken when the Medes and Persians in, they they um, dammed up the Euphrates River, and they went under the where the river was into the city, and they were able to take it when Belshazzar was ruling in uh, uh, Babylon with his father, 
And so it's it's great river. It was spoken of in the book of Genesis as Euphrates and Tigris coming out and coming together. And they do meet uh, down near, I think it's the Persian Gulf that they end up meeting at. And some have believed that that's where the Garden of Eden is because those two rivers meet there and the two other rivers that are mentioned in Genesis as being where the Garden of Eden is. Um, we're not quite sure about that. There's some theories about different riverbeds and stuff that are in that section that it could possibly be it. But the Bible says a few things about this, um, this river. It's in prophecy quite a bit. I want to read you first of all, and let me go ahead and get there and put it on the screen for you. I wasn't going to do it because I was going to play this later, but I wanted to go ahead and play that for you. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'll just respond to the video first. Uh, I'm really skeptical about things like that. I, I don't think it's true. Uh, I think that whoever played it thought they could get a viral TikTok if they played this and you would have these noises. Remember, for a long time, there was this story going around about people working up in Russia and they were drilling really far down in the earth. China was another place it was brought up at and they could hear the screams of people in hell. And um, some preachers even grabbed a hold of it and started to say that, uh, started to talk to it like it was true, like we've got proof of hell now because this happened. But it was a Christian myth. There's quite a few of these Christian myths, and one preacher says them, and another preacher hears them and think, well, they must know. And so it kind of continues on when really it's it's not. And there's nothing that you can back up this to know any kind of scholarly work. Is this in Iraq? Was the, Were their voices real? Um, I don't think they were. I think someone's just putting together a viral TikTok video. But it does lead to some questions about the Euphrates River and what's happening right now. Because some pretty amazing thing, an amazing thing is happening to the Euphrates River. And that is that it used to be this grand and glorious river that no one could ever imagine would dry up. And the Euphrates River is beginning, it is drying up. Uh, I want to read you a couple of passages. That's what I'm looking up here. I want to put them on the screen for you. So we have Isaiah 15. No, no, Isaiah 11, 15. Let's see. Is that the right verse? Yeah, that's the right one. Okay. So let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. It says, uh, the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With a mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the rivers and strike the seven streams and make um, men cross over dry shod. So he's talking about waving his hand over a river and men crossing over that river. Now I want to read you the passages out of Revelation now that over the mighty river that he's going to take a mighty river and he's going to have men cross over it. And I want to take you to uh, Revelation. Let me go ahead and get you out of there. And then I will get back to my Bible again. And I'll go to um, I think we'll go to Revelation. Let's see. Let's go to Revelation 16 first, 16, 12. And um, I'll, I'll be teaching on this not long from now. Within a few months from now, I'll be teaching in Revelation chapter 16 or Revelation chapter 2 now. It may take us a little longer to go through there, but I'll give much more detail on this when we get there. Uh, so let me bring this up on the screen for you. This is Revelation 16, 12. It says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up, so the way of the kings of the east uh, might be prepared. So the kings of the east, east of Euphrates, would be India, would be China, would be 
um, you know, just that region of the world would be east of the Euphrates River. A a large army is going to come over that river and um, the Euphrates River is going to be dried up for that. Let me take you to this last one here in the book of Revelation, and that's Revelation 19. And it's the one that is connected to the video that we just watched. It's Revelation 19.5. And let's see if that's really the right one. Yeah. Um, No, that's not the one that I wanted. What is it? It is um, the waters will dry up, reach parched, 16.2, and the angel out his bowl in the river will dry to prepare the way. Um, ah, where's the one that I want? All right, I'm not going to show you. I'm just going to tell you. You guys can look it up. So there's a passage in Revelation that says that the angel's going to pour, I think it's the sixth bowl out onto the world. And the four angels are, or yeah, angels that are under the Euphrates River will be released and will kill a third of mankind. So that's terrifying. And that's frightening. And it will tell you how bad the times of the last days are going to be, the seven-year trial and tribulation period. That just one of the event out of 21, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, just one of those bowls being poured out causes a third of the earth to be killed. And this is after other things have caused major damage around the world as well. Some have suggested that these four angels at the Euphrates rivers were the principalities that we met in the book of Daniel that Daniel said that there was, um, he, that he saw the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece, or he saw Gabriel who was fighting with the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece. The Bible talks about principalities and powers. These are believed to be principalities over kingdoms. The Bible says that Michael uh, in Daniel chapter 12 is the great prince that stood up, stands up over the nation of Israel. And so this seems to be a high-ranking angel. And some believe it to be the Prince of Babylon that was bound in the Euphrates River, the Prince of the Mede and Persian, the Persian uh, that was bound in the Euphrates River. The Bible never says they were. They're just kind of speculating here. Uh, the Greek, the the uh, principality that was over Greece uh, for Alexander the Great, and the principality that was over Rome. These are the four world powers, and then we have the one world power that is to come, and that's the iron feet and toes mixed with clay. It's fragile. It only lasts for seven years. Some believe these are the angels that are going to be released. There's no way that we know. Um, But it is a frightening account. And the fact that the Euphrates River, which at a certain point you never thought that it could be dried up, is actually drying up right now. Some places it looks just like a stream. It is almost to the point where people could just walk across it in sandals, as it says in the book, you know, dry shod in the book of Isaiah. Now, could this be reversed? We look at it and we go, the river's drying up. And against the texture of the of what the Bible says the last days will be like, when men will be lovers of themselves, will have a form of godliness, but deny the power, when lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. Uh, there's going to be a great falling away. And we see a lot of Christians that have fallen away today. The Bible talks about when you see all of these things happening, pestilence and war and earthquakes and natural disasters, and it seems like they're happening at a higher rate than ever before. There's droughts all around the world, which is causing the Euphrates River to dry up. They're also damming it up and stealing the water from it as it goes through different countries, uh, and uh, that's causing that to happen. So it looks like like we're in the last days. 
I would not be surprised if Jesus comes at any moment. And for that reason, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you guys are hypocrites because you can discern the weather, but you can't discern the times. Well, we want to discern the times. When the Bible, when the Bible says the last days are going to be like this, and then the last days are like that, we need to make sure that we are ready and we're not living for something else, but we're living for Christ. It should be sober. Jesus said, be ready because you don't know when the Son of Man is going to return. But we know the signs of his coming in the world looks like that. Now, could the Lord give us a reprieve? Could we get another couple hundred years? Maybe God will reverse things and the Euphrates River will fill up and it will no longer look like the last days. By the way, another one of the signs of the last days is the, the Jewish people returning to Israel. The Jews return to Jerusalem that Israel, that Jerusalem is under Israeli control today and that they became a nation just as God did, said they would. The Gog and Magog war alliances, the countries that we know they are there in the book of Ezekiel, are aligning against Israel today. For the first time, Russia and Iran are on the same side and that alliance in Ezekiel 39, 38 and 39, tells us that Russia and Persia are gonna be on the same side. But God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants people to come to Christ. And so Peter said concerning the second coming of Christ that God is not slack concerning his promises, but he wants people to get saved. And so God may give us more time. It may be 50 years or 100 years. Maybe we're getting a sign of what it's like and we tread water here as it were for a while until Jesus returns. And that's why we were told so clearly, be ready because you don't know when I'm going to return. And watch and pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all of these things that will come to pass on the earth. And so we, what do we do? We continue. We occupy. We provide for our families. We prepare for our retirement, but we make sure that our lives with Christ are right and spiritually we are right with him. Uh, as far as the question about this particular video, and I think it was fact check these hands uh, that brought up this video. I don't think the video is real. I think it's fake. Um, but I'm one who looks for a lot of evidence. I am, I'm a skeptic and I want to see the evidence. Um, when, um, when, when I was in the Pentecostal church, I would, I wanted experiences with God. I wanted them genuinely. And I would go up when they were praying people and, and having them be slain in the spirit. And I wanted God to touch me. I wanted everything God had for me. And so I would raise my hands, I would close my eyes. Someone would put their hand on my forehead and pray for me. And I knew there was a catcher behind me and I would fall back into their hands and then lay on the floor. I told, I think it was, I told someone about that. And they said, you were, you were faking? And not really, I wasn't really faking. I was trying to experience it genuinely. But every time I hit the floor or was laid down on the floor, I laid there until I thought it was an appropriate time to be able to get up. Nothing, nothing happened to me. God didn't knock me down. God didn't knock me over. I had a friend of mine who said he would never go down. He would never go down slain in the spirit unless it really happened. And he eventually went down. And to this day, he says that God knocked him down, had that experience. I didn't experience it. And I'm skeptical of that experience. Can God knock down his child? Sure. But should we make it a practice in the church? No. So I don't think we should. So um, this whole Euphrates River video, the TikTok thing about going viral with the sounds of demons underneath there. No, not true that, from, my, from my perspective. However, 
it tells us and reminds us that one day four angels will be released from a dried up Euphrates River and a, th- and a third of mankind will be killed by them. And so that will be absolutely frightening. So let's stay ready. Let's make sure that we are ready, that we will be ready um, when, whenever Christ returns, whether it's as we are suspecting soon or if God delays and maybe gives us a revival. Wouldn't that be great? If we had another Jesus revival or, you know, just another revival where a bunch of people end up giving their lives to Christ. And um, we, we give altar calls after virtually every sermon. I'm mean, very rarely, sometimes when I go really long, I won't give an altar call. And although we do have services that don't have people raise their hand and give their lives to Christ, I, I can confidently say that every time, every Wednesday night, every Sunday or weekend services, people give their lives to Christ. And most of the time, many people give their lives to Christ. God's doing something. And um, I think more people ought to give opportunities for people to surrender their lives to Christ and to live seriously for him. Um, I, I am amazed that churches don't do that or somehow feel that they shouldn't. All right, so if you have any questions about that video or about the passages um, in uh, in the Bible about that. I wish I could bring up that last one. I meant to find it and I thought I did, but I guess I didn't find it. If anybody has that verse and they want to put it down there, then go ahead. All right. So we do have a question from uh, Andre, who got first this time. Andre, good to see you. Andre says, when Lucifer is thrown into the pit, Isaiah 14, 15, and 16, will everyone see him? Well, who are those mentioned in verse 16? All right, well, let's take a look at this. So we're going to go to Isaiah. And I'll put it up on the screen for you. We'll take time to find it here. Isaiah 14. And thank you for putting the reference in there, Andre. Uh, and we will go to 15. And so I'm just going to go back a little bit here. I want to see what the um, what the topic is. Right, the fall of the king of Babylon. And then as he starts talking about it, it's obvious that it's not the king of Babylon, but it's actually some demonic power that has come from it. Um, And so um, let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. And this is um, verse 12. We'll start in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Um, And that is the Greek word, or excuse me, the Latin word for Lucifer is um, son of the morning or morning star or burning one. And it is a Latin word. And that's why I always say that Lucifer's name is not Lucifer, but it needs to be translated literally. And I think that we get a literal translation in some of the other, let me see what else I've got on here. Let's see what the NIV says. Um, Let's see. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, um, you have been cast down. So that's a better translation of that particular word, uh, morning star. So, I just, it's just important to know that it was the King James Bible that used the word Lucifer. That's a Latin word, and the text is in Greek. And so people talk about that being his name. It's not his name. Uh, it is um, a reference. God's mocking him. He wanted to, to, to put himself above the real morning star, which is Jesus. And then he says, how you have fallen, O Lucifer, O son of the morning, our, our morning star, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, 
you who are weak in the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, which is an interesting statement. We, we generally misquote that. I will, I will get my throne above God's throne, but he says above the stars of God, the stars of God seem to be a reference to maybe the most powerful angels that are there. In Job, it says that the morning stars sung together. And here he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars. And maybe the burning ones, the morning star, all of that is talking about angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. So Satan is just full of pride. He wants to be the greatest being that there is. I will be the, I, I will be like the most high. Notice he says, I'll be like the most high. Didn't say I'll have my throne above the most high, but I'll be like the most high. And um, this is the same thing he said in the temptation in the garden. If you eat of that fruit, God knows that you will be like him. So Satan wanted to be like the most high. I, don't, I think he knew he couldn't subject the most high, but he thought that he could be like him. And so he wanted to be like him. And, and that was what, what caused man to fall in his pride, that he saw that it was desirable to make one wise, and um, or, or that Eve did anyway. And then we get to the verses, finally, Andre. Yet you shall bring, be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth terrible, who shook kingdoms? So the Bible is full of mystery, and rightfully so. There's a lot of things uh, that we are told. Let me get right back where I want to get here. There are, there are a lot of things that we are told that we don't really understand or know all of the details about. And I think there needs to be that mystery in the Bible. So God did not give us every detail of every event. And sometimes we're looking for, for all the details around an event, and we're just not going to get it. So he's going to be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Sheol is the reference in the Old Testament to the, the, the place of the dead, sometimes literally meaning grave and sometimes meaning an afterlife. It's a mysterious word that we don't know all of the things about. But what we do know is that Satan is going to be thrown into the lowest parts of the pit, and he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, where he will be in torment, uh, well, th th that was made, it says that was made for Satan and his angels. So he will be in torment uh, forever and ever in hell. And uh, the lowest part of the pit here, I don't know whether this is talking about the lake of fire, whether it's talking about a holding place. Remember, he's chained up for a thousand years during the, or during the millennial period. Um, there's some mystery to it, but we can know that he's going to go to the place of the dead. He's going to be in the lowest parts of the pit. Those who will see you will gaze at you and consider saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? And I think that we're going to look at Satan and go, that guy, that's the one who did it. We're going to think that he was so much more powerful and he is powerful. Don't get me mistaken, but he's, he's not what we make him to be in our minds. And I think that's what that is. So who are those who see him? Maybe others who are in Sheol, maybe some who are in the pit. Maybe some who watch him get thrown into the pit. Maybe when Satan is brought out and thrown in there, everyone sees him. It would seem that he's caused the earth such trouble and problems that it would be right for all of us to see his punishment. 
And so maybe, maybe that's it. Um, so there are a lot of things that we don't know, Andre, about that, but we do know what's taking place there. So I do appreciate that. I uh, appreciate your question. As always, we have another question for Fact Check These Hands. I think that was you that asked about the video. I think maybe it's, maybe it was maybe it was Kimberly. Um, so Fact Check These Hands says, please explain the last sentence of Revelation 25. How do you explain this to a person who questions pre-trib rapture? I've read commentaries, but I'm not grasping it. Thanks. All right, Fact Check These Hands. I appreciate that. I'm going to go ahead and look it up here. We're looking for Revelation 25. And I'll put it up on the screen. We'll take a look at it together. I'm trying to think of what it is, but I'm not sure. All right. Yeah. Okay. So let's come back here a little bit. Um, let's come back to verse 4. You're asking about verse 5, so it's not that's not too far back. So let's go ahead and bring this up on screen, and we'll read this. So things are being wrapped up. The tribulation period is done. And, and, and John says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of men who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live until the first, until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, let's, if we continue to read here, uh, it's the first resurrection is just opposed against the second death. So the second resurrection is called the second death. Blessed are the holy in who has part in the first resurrection. Okay. And all it did was give us the very end of the first resurrection there. I'll explain that in a moment. Over such the second death has no power. So there's, there's two resurrections. The first resurrection and the second death. And these are explained in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. And some will be risen, it says there, I think it's verse 2, Daniel 12, 2. And some will be risen to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. The ones to everlasting life are part of the first resurrection. The everlasting contempt is the second resurrection. Now, those who are against those who don't believe in a pre-tribulation will take this verse and say, see, these guys that were beheaded in the tribulation period are the first resurrection. So therefore, you can't have a rapture before, which is a resurrection, before the tribulation period. But there is no reason. In, in fact, because something is said of one person doesn't mean it's, it, that, that everybody else is excluded. Let me explain what I let me explain what I mean. Um, let me get here first, and then let me explain what I mean. So, um, if um, if I tell you that um, me and my wife had steaks on Friday night and they were delicious, and I might be talking to one of my friends, and there's no reason for me to tell him that my whole family was there, that I had all the grandkids there, that everybody was there, got had steaks for everybody. But all I told him was me and my wife had steaks the other night. That's an accurate statement. Even though I had a whole house full of kids, I don't have to tell him I had every grandkid we have at our house and we had steaks and they were delicious. I just have to say, oh, me and my wife had steaks on Friday night and they were delicious. Got them from and wherever we got it from. Just letting them know that they're delicious steaks. 
So a lot of times people make this mistake when they're interpreting the Bible. The Bible says there's a certain amount of people and they think that's the totality of all that that happened. Um, there is um, the, there, there are quite a few verses that people do this with. So when it says here that this is the first resurrection, that these people who are, are that come out of the tribulation period are the first resurrection, it doesn't mean that they're the totality of all who are in their first resurrection. You would have Jesus that was resurrected as the firstborn among the dead, and he is part of the first resurrection. You have all of the saints that have been resurrected in 1 Thessalonians, and they are part of it. And then you have these guys that have to be resurrected after the tribulation period. They're ones who may have not, they were not Christians when the rapture happened, they became Christians. Then they were, were martyred for their faith, but they have to be resurrected to join everyone else in the first resurrection. Now, there are other passages that we could go to that talk about these two resurrections and call them different things. Daniel is just one example of that, to everlasting life and everlasting contempt. And so here, the second death, everyone who is resurrected after them will be resurrected to the second death. They will go before the great white judgment throne. So this does not preclude there being people who were resurrected before it. It's the completion of the first resurrection but the first resurrection is all of those who were resurrected into everlasting life. All right, fact check these hands. I hope that helps. If you have further questions, if I didn't answer it to your satisfaction, then go ahead and give me a follow-up and we'll try. To, I'll try to, to give you a little bit more there. All right, so um, we have a question from Empress Kimberly. Kimberly, good to see you. Uh, Hi, Pastor, Proverbs 2 and verse 8, what are the paths of justice? Also verse 21 and 22, is there is this about the millennium? This doesn't seem to happen today. Thank you for helping. Sure, let's go ahead and go to Proverbs chapter two. And I appreciate you putting the scriptures in there as well, because it helps so much when we're able to go there and take a look at it. In fact, a lot of times we have our questions answered by just reading it in context, which is when, when the first thing you wanna do to understand something is read it in context. The second thing you wanna do is see whether or not there are any cross-references that can help us, all right? And, and usually with those two things, you can have cleared up what the, um, what the problem is. So let's see, you wanna know about verses 21 and 22 as well. Proverbs 2, verse eight, all right? And let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. We'll take a look at it. So it says, um, let's just go back to verse six. I like to just kind of read it in context, then we'll get to verse eight. For the Lord gives wisdom, for his mouth, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk upright. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of the saints. Now you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. So I think he's saying here, Kimberly, that he is guarding the path of justice, the upright, it's like when you walk in injustice, you're treating people around you fairly, that God guards that. He guards the path of justice. Uh, so we, we see there's wisdom in the upright, knowledge and understanding. Um, uh, the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord finds not the knowledge of God. Blessed are those who find knowledge of God. And then those who, that God guards, the, uh, guards justice. And what God cares about most of all is the way we treat each other. 
The Bible says the mercy you give is the mercy you're going to receive. The judgment you judge with will be how you are judged. Uh, if we don't forgive, then we're not going to be forgiven. And we know that a husband who doesn't treat his wife correctly will have his prayers hindered. And I think that what God cares about most of all is whether or not we're being kind and loving and tender-hearted. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. The passage before that says, put away all anger, malice, the desire to see someone hurt. Um, stop trying to attack one another. I love, I think it's Galatians that says, stop biting one another lest you devour each other. There's no reason for us as Christians to attack each other in anger. We can question doctrine. We can challenge what people believe. We just want to do it without arguing. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, it says in 2 Timothy, but be gentle to all, able to teach, correcting those who are in opposition. So God is looking for us to walk justly, and he guards the paths of justice. So when we are treating people right, then God guards us. We're on the paths of justice and we're being just to everyone around us and we're not unfairly treating people. He guards the path of justice. And then let me jump down to 20 and 22, which is a great encouragement for us. If you're treating someone wrong now, let God be convict your heart. Let's just ask God now, Lord, help us that, that we would treat people around us right and reveal to us where we aren't. And when we're resistant to stop treating people poorly, help us to treat them right. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. All right, so the other verses were 21 and 22 in the same chapter. And here, this is the end of the chapter. I'm gonna bring it up on the screen for you again, I think. All right, it says in 21, for the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it but the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. Um, yeah, that certainly is speaking, Kimberly, of the very, I gotta, I gotta get my buttons uh, straightened out here. Um, this is certainly speaking of the very last days, what's gonna happen during the last days and how even though God causes the sun to shine on the wicked and the upright now, the rain to fall on the wicked and the upright, Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people and good things happen to good people. We're just living. This is life. But one day it will not be like that. It'll all be wrapped up. And those who walked righteously will be rewarded. And those who didn't will be rewarded for their unrighteousness or will be punished for their unrighteousness. And so that passage is telling us that all things are not going to remain as they are right now. That although we're living in a day, and, and the Bible also tells us to be good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. And that passage that talks about God causing the rain to fall on the good, the just, and the unjust. Hey, if we want to be like God, then we want to treat everybody well, but especially Christians. So I think that both of these passages in chapter uh, two of the book of Proverbs are connected. All right, Kimberly, thank you very much. And again, if um, you want to follow up on that, then you can go ahead and ask a follow-up question. If I don't get to it this week, I'll take a look and perhaps be able to get to it next week. All right. So we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, why is judgment swift for some and others God waits in? Uh, is it the condition of a person's heart? Thanks. Also, why didn't Paul recognize Ananias the priest? All right, so thank you, Jari, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to have to say to the first part of this, 
that I don't know. I recognize what you're saying. I know the Bible tells us not to grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if, if we faint not. That's in Galatians. The Bible also tells us in James to be like the farmer who waits for the first and second rain. We've got to be patient. We can't look at, at we can't look at sowing and reaping as if it's gonna take place within two or three days. What we sow now might come to pass in years to come. And so we just have to do it by faith. And maybe that's the reason. There are things that, that we receive right away and there are things that wait. And this is one of the reasons that if you're doing something sinful and you won't repent from it, and the book of Revelation in the letters to the churches in chapters two and three tells the church to repent five times, the church, not the world. We talk about repentance when people come to Christ, but, but God wants the church to repent of what they're doing. And so God sometimes doesn't judge us right away or discipline us right away. And we might mistake his quietness or his inaction as approval. And that's a mistake because sometimes God gives people room to repent. So if you have some sin in your life that you need to repent from, then repent from it. And by, by repentance, true repentance, come to him, let him know you're sorry, you wanna change, you don't wanna be that person. You can ask him for help to be able to be the person that you want him to be, that that inner man would be renewed day by day. But no one knows why God brings swift judgment to some and others it takes a long time, or why God blesses some and doesn't bless others, or the blessing comes in the different timing. The timing of God is a mystery and it's meant to be a mystery. So why didn't Paul recognize Ananias the priest? Maybe because of an eye disease. Paul said to the Galatians, you would have given me your eyes. When he talks about being hindered from going, the Holy Spirit hindering from going to the east, he ended up going west to Troas and over into Philippi. This is Europe now, Philippi, um, uh, Philippian, yeah, Philippi, Thessalonica, um, Berea, Athens, and then Corinth, and then back over the Aegean Sea over to um, Ephesus eventually. But he says, when I was with you, you cared about me, you would have given me your, your eyes. So, and he says, see what great letters I wrote with you? This is how I recite all my letters. So there were false letters circulating as if they were from Paul. So Paul would sign in his own hand, large letters at the end of his, his letters. And so when Paul was standing before the, the Sanhedrin and was commanded to be slapped, and Paul said, God will slap you, you whitewashed wall. And they said, you speak to the high priest that way? And he says, I don't know if they were the high priest. Uh, maybe that's why Paul didn't recognize him. Now, is it possible? I mean, Paul's not perfect, right? Paul, just like us, is it possible Paul got into the flesh and then just said, well, I didn't recognize that it was him? Um, I don't know. I certainly wouldn't want to slander Paul in that way. Um, but I don't think it's outside of the realm of what is possible. All right. So thank you very much, Jari, for your question. Um, we just got to be patient because God brings his, brings what he brings into our lives, whether, whether or not it is discipline, judgment, or good, or, or, or blessings for the things that we have done, righteousness from, um, from the seeds we have planted. So do the spirit from the spirit, you reap life. And we got to uh, wait for those things. We wait and we believe that God has the best in mind for us as we do. So um, we have a question from Ryan Terry. Ryan, good to see you. Good to have you joining us. Uh, Ryan says, 
if Jesus needed to die for our sins, being a perfect human without sin to do so, how does that count since he was still God and performed miracles, walking on water, etc.? Humans can't do that. All right. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. That's a good question. Uh, so, John chapter 1, let's go there and we can take a look at this. In John chapter 1, we have John, this is the last of the Gospels to be written, and he writes some things clearly that may have not been really clear in the Synoptic Gospels. So in John chapter 1, here it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we're told that the Word is God and created all things, and that darkness could not comprehend it. Then we go down to verse 14. And here it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So now we know that that word, then chapter one, that was in the beginning with God and that created all things, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on to talk about John bearing witness to it. Um, and um, then in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten son, literally the only begotten. The word son isn't there. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. So this is the same question that people will ask in this, this verse. They'll say, well, if no one has seen God at any time, then they saw Jesus. And if Jesus is God, then they saw him. So how does it count if he's coming and dying for us as a man, if he was God? And the answer to that is that he was fully human and fully God. He never stopped being God. But when he walked here on the earth, he walked as a human in his righteousness. Now, theologians will argue, did he, did he raise people, wrong button, did he raise people from the dead because by his own power? Or was it God that gave the father who gave him the power as a man to raise people from the dead? Walking on the water is an interesting passage, and there's a passage in Psalms that says, it is the Almighty who treads on the water. And here comes Jesus treading on the water, and it's connected to Psalms that the Almighty treads on the water. So that's a revelation that he is God. Whether or not Jesus could access his power as God anytime that he wanted doesn't mean that he didn't face all of the suffering as a man 100%. He said to Peter, put away your sword. All who live by the sword will die by the sword. Don't you know I could call a legion of angels to come and rescue me now? He could have, he could have, he was God. He could have spoken him out of existence. But he didn't. He faced it as a man, a full man, completely man. He faced every temptation as a man, yet without sin. And so he had this, he had a body of a man, fully human. And he goes to the cross and he suffers and he endures that fully human as a fully human man without calling on the power of God at all to damper the pain or anything that he went through. And that becomes the atoning sacrifice. And this, um, Ryan, isn't told to us only in the New Testament. 
it's told to us in the Old Testament as well, in one of the most amazing prophecies in the Old Testament that compares what Jesus went through as a man and foretells what he would suffer. Let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. I'll show you what I mean, Ryan. It says um, here in Isaiah 53, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do right for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man, I'm, I'm in Isaiah 56. So let me go to Isaiah 53. I'll just do it here with you guys on the screen. I need to be in Isaiah 53. I'm like, that's not what it says. All right, so this says, this is Isaiah 53. Who will believe our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of the dry ground and has no form of comeliness that we would see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He just becomes a man. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, who, um, who have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. So it was foretold that he would die for our sins, and that's Isaiah 53. And then, that he would not only die for our sins according to the scripture, but he would rise from the dead according to the scripture. And later on, Isaiah 53, it basically says, even though he dies, he will see his days. So not only does Isaiah 53 tell us about the suffering servant and what he will go through, but it also tells us that he's gonna die and be resurrected and that we need to receive the gospel, stand on it, believe it, and we will be saved if we know that Jesus died on the cross as foretold in the scriptures. And the fact that he is fully God is absolutely necessary because he had to be born without the sin nature. So I'm born with a sin nature. You, Ryan, were born with a sin nature. And so you can't die for other people's sins. Blood was necessary, the Bible says, to be shed for the sins of mankind. And it had to be righteous blood. And so the Bible says in Corinthians, he who knew no sin, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So is there any mystery in Jesus becoming a man and being fully man and fully God? Yeah, sure. How, how does that happen? How does he walk on the earth that way? But the question is not, is there any mystery and do I understand it completely? The question is, does the Bible say that that's what happened? And it clearly says that's what happened. The word created all things. Nothing was created was created without him. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory as the only begotten of, of God. And he gave his life for us that the sins were laid upon him. And all of these things were massively foretold. I hope that's helpful, Ryan. Again, if you have further questions, you can ask a follow-up. If I don't have time to get to it today, I will take a look at this, um, at these uh, questions a little bit later on, and I'll answer them next week if, um, if I can, all right? All right, so um, let's see. Thank you. I'm, 
Um, okay, thanks, Ryan. No, it was great. I was just reading Ryan's um, a response that Ryan gave. No, it was a great way to give that question. Hopefully, that's the question you meant to ask, and I answered that. All right. If not, then clarify it, and we'll look at answering um, it a little bit more in the future. All right. So, Segman Forty Five says, "Once saved, always saved." Are those are these those who contend that once saved, it's impossible to pull a Judas? and willfully depart from the faith. Thanks, dude, Robert. Thanks, uh, psych man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, the, the actual doctrine of once saved, always saved has been carefully written down by people in theology for centuries. And I, don't know where I stand on once saved, always saved, which I know is really frustrating to certain people. I have taught the Bible for over 40 years as a youth pastor, first of all, and then as a, as a, as a pastor of a church. I've been a pastor of the same church for 37 years. I've taught all the way through the Bible on four different occasions and the New Testament more than that. And I have come to change my mind on this topic over and over again because the scripture teaches that if you if, if a sheep leaves, Jesus will leave the 99 and go after the one. I have that own experience in my life. I walked away at 19. The pastor of the church that I attended had an affair. I got upset. Another individual in my life had an affair at the same time. I said, if this is what Christianity is about, I'm out. Now, I'm, I'm persuaded I wanted to walk away. And that gave me the excuse for me to do it. But God came after me in a very dramatic fashion. And at some Q&A, when I have more time, I'll tell you my testimony of when I came back to Christ and what God did and how amazing it was. I have that in my life that God came after me. Was that because I had made a genuine commitment? And had I not made a genuine commitment, would God have come after me in, in that point? I don't know that I can answer that. But I know I read passages like that. And then I read passages in the book of Galatians where it says that I'm going to paraphrase this. I'll need to look up these passages to get them exactly. But it says, if you're turning back to the law, then the sacrifice of Christ does you no good. That's what's being said in the passage. So these people that knew Christ in Galatia, in the region of the Galatians, and they were going back to the law or to the law as Gentiles, turning to give sacrifices and trying to become legalistic and keep the law in order to be saved. He says, that the, the blood of Christ does you no good. Hebrews has a couple of statements like that. It's the same thing. Here you have Jewish people who are going back to the law because, because Judaism was a sanctioned religion and Christianity wasn't. They were feeling the pressure of persecution. And so they were going back to the temple, both the letter to the Galatians and the letter to the, to the Hebrews were written while the temple was still in Jerusalem. And there were people that were saying that you had to go through these things in Judaism in order to be saved. And so there's several passages in the book of Galatians. We just got done teaching that. We have, I don't know how many studies in it. If you want to go back and catch that up, you can go onto our app, uh, calvarytucson.com, our uh, Calvary Tucson app. Um, I think it's, you just look up Calvary Tucson or Robert Furl and you'll find all of our apps. Um, uh, and I think we have all of Galatians up on YouTube as well. So if you just go to Calvary Tucson with Robert Furrow YouTube channel and search for Galatians 1, 
you'll get the very first one. You can go all the way through the book of Galatians with us. Uh, but it does talk about it, passages that make me question whether or not someone can leave their salvation. And all I can do now is go, there's tension in the scriptures. And if I do believe in perseverance of the saints, it's the only one of the of the Calvinist stances that I believe in. I don't believe in total depravity the way they mean it. I don't believe in limited atonement the way they mean it. I don't believe in irresistible grace. And um, the perseverance of the saints is the only one that I that I I think I lean towards. I say I don't know what I believe, but I think I lean towards when you make a genuine commitment to Christ and you are born again, that you can't be unborn again. That's what I lean towards. Am I right? Maybe not, because there are certain passages that make me question that. But maybe that tension is supposed to be there. Maybe God wants us to have, again, certain passages or certain topics that we don't know all the details on so that, again, there's mystery. There should be mystery in God and, and mystery of godliness, as the Bible talks about. These things ought to be there. And so um, I, um, I, I I lean towards that. And um, as far as Judas, we've talked about him before, Psych Man. Um, and you're right, he was not born again. And so he's living in those Old Testament times. Uh, but there were people that did follow God genuinely. It looks like seems like Saul did. And then God would not even talk to him after a while. All right. So um, I know that he's a son of perdition, which means he's a son of waste. And I, I think that he could not be saved. So we have a question from Rod. Rod says, hi, Rod. Good to see you, by the way. Rod says, where is the fine line between trusting in the Lord or trusting in the Lord and testing the Lord? Wow, that's a really good question, um, Rod. So testing the Lord would be when I when I I've received a promise from God and I test that. So Jesus would have said, Thou shalt not test the Lord your God, the Bible says, when Satan told him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, because God had said, He shall keep you in all your ways, lest you should dash your foot against the stone. Satan left out in all of your ways. And Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So the Bible tells us that it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. If it's appointed once for man to die, then there's an appointment for Robert Furl. And I'm going to die when on that appointment. I'm, I don't think I can die before that time unless I tempt God. So in other words, if I was like, you know what? God's got my appointed time. I'm going to go out like a crazy man. I'm going to go get on a motorcycle. I'm just going to drive like a crazy man. I don't care. I'm going to just whip through traffic. And I end up broadside in a car and dying instantly. And I picture God in heaven going, Robert, you moved your date up. You weren't supposed to be here for another 20 years, but here you are. And so God has that appointment, but you can test God. And so we want to walk circumspectly. We want to walk wise. Um, another way you could test God is you could say, my sins are forgiven and, and there's grace. And therefore I'm going to go out and do these sins because I have grace and grace is going to cover that. I think that's tempting God as well. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. I think the, the church at Pergamum was compromising. At least there were compromising teachers that were there and they were compromised because of these compromising teachers. And God says, I'm going to come against you with a sword. And he's going to bring judgment. 
to the church at Corinth that was taking communion in an inappropriate manner, some of them died and they were judged by God. And so that fine line between trusting in the Lord and, and tempting the Lord, well, you trust in the Lord, you love him and you walk with him, and you don't in any kind of arrogance step out saying, look, this, you know, nothing, nothing bad can happen to me. Or, you know, God said this is so it can't happen to me. When indeed we have, we have free will. God is so sovereign and I believe in the sovereignty of God. So because I say I believe in free will, don't tell me I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the sovereignty of God. God is so sovereign that he can give man free choice. If God wants to do that, he can do it. And he gave us free choice. So we can choose to do things that are not like God. And even though God has given us a promise or an appointed time, we can end up um, testing him. I hope that helps, Rod. I appreciate that. I appreciate you. Uh, we have a question from Kay. This will be, I think, our last question for today. Um, other questions that are here, I'll take a look at and see if I can't put them in a future Q&A. We'll be back together again on Saturday, Lord willing. So Kay says, um, born again, by heart changed, but believing. In original text includes um, commitments and surrender in its meaning. Jesus explained born again this way. Why isn't this more clear in the English to new believers? All right, okay, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, I I don't know. I, I, I think to new believers, if they're, if they're hearing it correctly, that it is gonna be clear. It, it may take a while for us to kind of get our heads around spiritual issues and how we're believing. And maybe we've been out of the environment of, of living for God and real truth uh, for so long that it ends up not being really clear. But um, I brought up here, Paul giving the gospel. So this is Paul giving the gospel in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you. Now, Paul said in another place, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So with the gospel comes the grace of God to be able to receive him and believe in him. And so we preach the gospel and then the grace is given to a person to receive him and believe in him. Uh, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. So he says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you. Okay, so it's preached, which you received and by which you stand and by which you also are saved. So the gospel brought the power, they, they received it they stood in it and they were saved by the gospel. That, and, and now he's gonna explain what that is. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. And so right there we go, by which also you are saved. And we go, see there, once saved, I saved. And then he says, if you hold fast to that word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. And that makes us go, okay, so I still don't know. Then he says, um, for I deliver to you, first of all, which I received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So that's the gospel, the scripture foretold. I read Isaiah 53 and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So the Bible speaks both of his burial and his resurrection in the Old Testament, according to the scriptures. And then he says, and then he was seen by Cephas and it talks about the eyewitness accounts. But so that's the gospel that he died according to scriptures, was buried, rose again, according to the scriptures. And when we believe that, this is what we need to do by which you are saved. Um, here he says, my brother, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received. 
in which you stand, by which you also are saved. So we receive that gospel, we stand in that gospel, by which we are saved. And when we come to Christ and we receive him and we invite him into our lives, okay, then we are transformed and we become that new person that God made us to be. And all of a sudden I wanna do what God wants me to do. All of a sudden I've become a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and behold, everything becomes new. So all of a sudden I am that new person and I am that new creation that God has made me to be. Again, how incredibly powerful. So the fruit that follows are not me saying, I'm gonna become a better person so I'm gonna get saved. It's me saying, I believe Jesus died for my sins, was buried and resurrected as a down payment for me being resurrected and I'm gonna receive him. And once the Holy Spirit is inside of you, he begins to do that work and you no longer live like you used to live. There is a transformation that takes place. The repentance is the change of mind. The change of mind starts when you receive the gospel, which is has the grace and the power of God to be able to believe in it. All right, so that's how we receive the gospel. And I can understand how someone would need to hear that a few times to really get it. And people call it easy believism, but what do you want people to do? You want people to go out and do works to get saved? As soon as you add something to the gospel, then you're adding works to it. And, and, that's a pro and that's problematic. So maybe it's hard to understand, Kay, just because we've got to hear it a few times and really understand it. And plenty of people just don't preach it. They don't preach it, they won't, uh, for whatever reason. Some believe that giving altar calls weekly is a bad thing, which is crazy. Preach the gospel uh, to all creation, to all creatures, the Bible says. All right, so I appreciate you and um, all that you guys have, have given today. Good questions, love you. Stay close to Jesus, walk close to him, search the scriptures, be in the word of God, abide in Christ and let his word abide in you and whatever you desire will be given to you. Uh, delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. You, you shine for him as you go out in this world. So live that way for him. All right, I'm out. We'll see you guys in about an hour if you're gonna join us for our service. I will be talking about the Church of Pergamum. We're gonna talk about the false teachers who were teaching compromise, what that meant and what God was going to do because of that compromise, what it means today when someone compromises and how God will deal with that compromising person today. That's Revelation chapter two. I look forward to seeing you guys in about an hour or so for that service. So God bless you guys. I'm out. I will see you next time on a Truth Quest podcast.